after a bit of messing about and generally getting things wrong, I managed during the course of yesterday evening and early this morning to persuade a Mixtral, Mixtral as it's now called, model to run. Unfortunately, even though I've got the fastest, most expensive computer I've ever had, it still isn't really adequate to the job. It will just about run a quantized 3-bit model, which is a, a poor cut-down version of the real thing. But Apple, in their infinite wisdom, won't allow their punters to use more than two-thirds of the memory that they provide in a machine. It's got a very big machine, it goes up to three-quarters, but mine it's two-thirds. So of my 32 gigabytes, I'm only allowed to use about 21 and a half. And the biggest model I can fit into that is 20 and a half. And further than that, it will not go. But that's life. And the model runs and it's not, not wildly interesting. It doesn't say anything profound or particularly striking, but it is interesting that it's, it runs, and it runs locally. And of course, people always get very excited about the latest thing, but I don't think there's too much to get excited about except the, the technology itself. But I did want to come back, not really to Mixtral, which has been preoccupation for the last 24 hours, but to the subject of yesterday's uh, episode 27 and what's going to happen to us all when AI does all the things that we have historically thought were so human that no machine could ever possibly do them. And as I may have mentioned before, there used to be a thing in the realm of theology and science, religion and science, called the God of the Gaps. Because basically what would happen would be that a theologian or somebody religious would say, oh well, science will never explain this. So you're left with the view that the only thing that can explain it is God. And of course what happened in this God of the Gaps scenario is that science kept on chipping away at the things that it couldn't explain, with the result that if you were foolish enough to have embraced such a philosophy or a theology, your god became progressively smaller every time science made an advance. And there were two books uh, on the AI on what computers can do, written by a guy called Dreyfus, for what computers can't do and then the subsequent sequel was what computers still can't do and the list of things that he has in those books has gradually been whittled away until pretty much nothing is left. It would be a brave person who now tried to say what computers 
either can't or never will be able to do because I think we've seen that there's no great distinction to be made between what computers can do and what we can do. And although we might wish to preserve such a distinction, it's not going to last very much longer. Indeed, the year that we've had since Google, since I beg your pardon, OpenAI released ChatGPT has seen such an explosion in this area that one wonders where we'll be in even a year's time. And it's rather amusing when you hear people talking about what things will be like in 50 years, because I simply don't think that we can have any conception on that sort of time frame. But to come back to yesterday's episode, what will we do when AI does everything we've historically thought only a human could do? Not just accountancy, which is probably not a very good example, but the writing of novels and poetry, the discovery of new scientific theories, the proving of mathematical theorems, writing of music, although oddly enough, the AI community doesn't seem to have got very far or been very interested in music, but it'll come. I'm looking forward to the days when we fine-tune the model to write a few more Mozart piano sonatas or symphonies or even operas. And it'll happen, bound to happen. It's not so difficult that I couldn't, if I was so minded, even have a bash at doing it myself, because I do kind of understand what it would require. Anyway, I'm not going to be doing that anytime soon, but AI is going to do pretty well everything that humans historically, traditionally, have understood themselves to be uniquely suited to doing. Right, so let's just ask ourselves where our self-respect is going to come from when there's nothing that we can do that a computer can't do at least as well and almost certainly better and faster, more accurately. And I think that one of the first things to observe is that this has already been true in a number of cases for decades, ever since the famous occasion when Garry Kasparov lost a chess match to Deep Blue, and Deep Blue was crude beyond belief compared with the sorts of things that Alpha Zero can do out of the deep mind stable. But since then, it's always been the case that computers could play better chess than human beings, but it didn't stop human beings from playing chess. It's been true for even longer that computers could add up or multiply or do long-winded calculations far more quickly than a human, far more quickly. It was millions of times quicker where it's simple arithmetic. But that didn't stop human beings from doing a certain amount of arithmetic. It's been true that aircraft could fly faster than people could run, as indeed and bicycles, and well, they can't fly, but you know what I mean, they can go, as can cars. So, but people still try 
to run faster than one another, even though they know that the speed at which they can run is as nothing compared with the speed of a bike or a car or a rocket or whatever. So there is a certain sense in which the comparison is fatuous and the claim that we will lose motivation perhaps bogus but I think that what will happen is that the, it's that the motivation will shift. It will no longer be I need to do this to earn a living because I won't need to do it to earn a living. It won't even be I need to do this in order to be better than you because why what would come from being better than you nothing hangs on it and I can use as an example here chess again all right Magnus Carlsen has been world champion for some considerable time there are some serious challenges coming up but nothing hangs on that. In other words, the fact that Magnus Carlsen is the best chess player in the world has no implications, as far as I can see, for anything other than Magnus Carlsen and all the other serious chess players in the world. Whereas if it's a matter of can you launch a rocket and get it to Mars, something does hinge on it. And so there is a difference between saying I'm the best human being at this and saying I'm good at this in a way that has some significance beyond the human realm because in most of these cases what will happen even if it's not true yet is that it will be less and less significant that a human being can do this better than any other human being what will happen is that we find ourselves saying well yes you may be able to do it better than any other human being, but you still can't do it anything like as well or as quickly as a computer, as an AI. So nothing will hang on it except our self-esteem, our pride, perhaps prize money in a chess competition or something like that. Nothing will hang on it at all. Having said that, what follows? Well, it's difficult to see the, let's call it the economy of competitiveness from taking much of a turn other than the sense in which it is a source of entertainment. After all, nothing very much hangs on whether you make a blockbuster movie other than the fact that a lot of people go and watch it and spend their hard-earned cash watching it and therefore you make money from it. So you make money partly in order to entertain, partly in order to satisfy your own creativity, partly in order to no doubt silence some bee that's in your bonnet, partly to make money, but very little hangs on it. There isn't much of a spin-off. Now in other circumstances there are spin-offs and I suppose you could say that some of the more abstruse things that we've been engaging in or the best of us, the cleverest of us have been engaging in in mathematics have had all sorts of spin-offs in the modern world unexpectedly un in ways that were not foreseen by the people who started the whole process off sometimes centuries ago but they've had spin-offs because we've found 
applications for them, that they have been able to make a significant con contribution to resolving some problem or other. And so something that might at the time have seemed abstruse, pointless, the preserve of a self-interested uh, minority, even individual, can come to seem vitally important if it happens to be the case that it will solve a problem that it was not certainly designed to solve, but has been seen to solve. So that, all of that's true, and all of that is a reflection of the fact that we can do things creatively, pursuing interests, pursuing bees in our bonnets, in ways that do not necessarily furnish any immediate, immediate reward, either financial or even prestigious. We just find ourselves doing them because we're interested in them. And doing something because you're interested in it is really the theme that I want to make of this whole discussion, namely, we do things, this is the leaves on the tree thing, we do things because we want things, we want to do things that are interesting. Somebody's been writing Christmas cards. You know, it's expensive business nowadays, isn't it? I must remind myself to edit that bit out. Lady stopped in front of me to get out of her car and post a great pile of Christmas cards into the letterbox. The point of all of this is that we will find ourselves increasingly doing things that we want to do. Now even there, there are intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. I can play chess at a very poor level because I enjoy it, with no pretensions to being able to match the quality of play from even a modestly 
talented player, but the enjoyment is still real. And so I can spend my time profitably, as I see it, usefully, enjoyably, on that activity. I can play the piano, or the violin, or the oboe, or whatever it might be, in my modest, inadequate way, without any hope of ever being of the quality of a professional concert pianist, violinist, or oboist. But that doesn't matter either, if I enjoy it. And we can go on with this. We can say that the same is true of writing poetry, which may be awful, but if I enjoy it, what's that to you? Writing novels, even producing podcasts. Does it matter if anybody listens? Does it matter whether anybody likes it? Does it matter whether it stirs people up to great paroxysms of anger? If you say something that they don't like, I think not. I think one's entitled to say, more or less, within certain fairly large boundaries, what one likes. And that's going to be more and more the case. And so, what is the focus of education going to be? Is the focus of education going to be utilitarian in the small U sense, that it will be about providing people with the knowledge and skills that they need to get qualifications in order to do things that the world needs doing? Well, I'm sure there'll always be people who do things that the world needs doing. I don't think I envisage a world where everything is done by robots and androids and AIs, but I could be wrong about that because I'm not sure that the scope to which those technologies can be put is necessarily bounded. Or if it is bounded, the bounds don't necessarily lie within the bounds of human capacity. They may lie very, very far beyond those bounds. So I don't see education being able to justify itself on those grounds. But I do think that education will be able to, and to my mind should always have already been, the means that people use to discover for what they're interested in. Now, I've talked about this before many a time in this podcast, but I think it's only as a result of following my nose over the last few days that instead of seeing it as a way into education, perhaps a way into education that would be a prelude to the sorts of learning that would lead to qualifications, that would lead to employment, that would lead to prosperity, in other words, seeing an interest-driven education as a prelude to the sort of education that is more familiar. Instead of seeing that, I now see it as an end in itself. Indeed, I don't think that education will survive if it continues to pretend, as it has done for decades and centuries, that it's preparing people for the world of work because it isn't and it will increasingly little be doing so as more and more of the world of work is taken over by AI, androids and the like. 
So instead, education has just got to get to grips with the fact that the only justification there is for it is if it helps people to discover what they're interested in in ways that will provide them with a motivating reason to be even in a world where their skills and their knowledge are largely not needed and therefore by implication not recognised. Education, in other words, has got to become interest-driven rather than qualification-driven because otherwise there'll be no reason for it at all. We talked in the last or the penultimate episode before this about how you provide the world with a sufficient number of very talented people unless you prepare an enormously broad-based pyramid for most of whom what they're learning will never be of any good and use. Well, maybe AI will help us with that because it will be able to identify much earlier and more accurately the people who have the requisite skills to become, in some sense or other, experts. But if we're talking about the cleverest people in the world, people like Ed Whitten at the Institute for Advanced Study, if we're talking about that, then I think what we're saying is that the chances of any AI being able to identify those skills are, at the moment at least, remote. But if we allow education to pursue an interest-driven agenda, then there is at least a chance that it will find itself in a central position in providing people with the motive that they need in order to learn anything at all. Because otherwise, I think there's a very real danger that people won't. Now, this presents challenges because a lot of people nowadays are not interested in very much. And of course, there's the, the classical archetypal stereotypical sex, drugs and rock and roll argument that says that that's all that teenagers are interested in and that education is not likely to be providing that anytime soon. But what I think education can do if it gets its act together and it needs to be thinking about how it's going to do it is it can change into something that is interest-driven. And it can not only be based upon the interests that naturally emerge from children, but the interests that those children can have planted in them by a suitably inspiring teacher or a suitably inspiring environment and curriculum. And education has got to do that. Now, all that being said, there is still another question. And the question goes something like this. If I am a young human being and I am aware that the skills I am acquiring, the knowledge that I am getting, the intelligence that I am deploying are always going to be inferior to those that are similarly 
talented AI can deploy, then what is my motivation if it's not that I'm interested in them? And then you could even say to me, yeah, but wherein does that interest lie? What is it that I'm interested in if not the thing that I'm studying or doing? How can I be interested in something sufficiently, sufficiently to make it a way of life, even though I am fully aware that I am not necessarily very good at it. And here, I want to take a leaf out of my first wife's book. Her school, which I won't name, but had as its motto, wink it, we say wink it, or link it if you like, we say wink it, which loosely translated is he conquers who conquers himself, or she conquers in this case, who conquers herself. And the notion then is that the primary reference point for my motivation is that I want to become a better self, better than I am. I want to realize some potential and not because the potential that I will realize will put me at the top of some pile, make me the best chess player or the best mathematician or the best scientist or the best poet or the best composer etc in the world. No, no, not for those reasons. But just because they will, if I exercise them correctly, mean that I am a better poet, composer, mathematician than I was yesterday. Than I have been before. I'm sorry about the aeroplanes. Typhoons exercising over the Norfolk countryside. So, if I am in competition with myself, this should remind us, if we've been listening for long enough, of David Silver's remarkable and very appropriate observations about how Alpha Zero learned from self-play and how the benefit of self-play arises primarily from the fact that your opponent is always roughly of the same standard as you and therefore you grow together, you learn together, you get better together and you are always in a sense leapfrogging over one another getting better and better at something that you don't reference to anyone or anything else you just do it yourself. Now there is a caveat here too but I think that the caveat as so often turns out to be one of the most illuminating aspects of it. I'm thinking about my own very modest career as a chess player where playing against myself didn't work in the sense that, well, it made me a better chess player, but it didn't make me a good chess player. It only made me a slightly less bad chess player than I had been, someone who could sort of hold up 
a sort of position somewhere in the middle of a county chess team with no great distinction and no great claims whatsoever to being particularly good. Well, that being so, that being so, how can we compete with ourselves? How can we learn by playing ourselves? What is there that is going to make that a ladder that we climb rather than just a recipe for stagnation where we can't get any better? And here, I think, that the availability of technology online is decisive. Because if I think back through my own education, and in particular to the days when I was an undergraduate mathematician at Oxford, if I had had access to the kinds of technology that we have now, I would have been much more successful. And the reason that I know that is because over recent months and years, I've revisited a lot of this and found it much better, much easier, much more rewarding than I did then. Now you can of course say, well yes, you're 50 years older, so it would be a pretty poor thing were that not so. But it is so to a remarkable degree. So much so that I'm sure that if I'd had access to the sorts of resources that are now available, I would have become a very much better mathematician than I ever did under the kind tutelage of the then system of lectures and tutors, from which I have to say I remember learning remarkably little. So where does one go with this? Well, I think that it takes us back to education. I think that the job that education is going to have to fulfill, the role that it's going to have to play, is that it's going to have to teach people to teach themselves, teach people to access, lever the technology in order to do what they're interested in doing. I don't think you can have an imposed curriculum because I don't think people will wash it and because I don't think it serves any purpose. But if I'm interested in something and you provide me with the technology to educate myself in it, then I think that I will go much further than I could ever have gone and most people have ever gone in, an in a system that insists that we learn what it thinks we need to know. Because increasingly, what we're going to discover is that it isn't going to be necessary to know very much. You'll perhaps gather from the hesitant way that I'm speaking that I'm at the moment crossing my favourite potato field again. The pain it is. So I think that interest-driven education 
is going to be the only horse in town very soon. And we won't bother with the kind of assessment that has strangled education in the past. We will simply be assessing in a different way whether someone has improved relative to themselves. So there will be baseline tests, there will be ways of saying this is where you are now and this is where you are much later, or perhaps not very much later, so you've made some progress. And I see that setting up the systems that will measure that kind of baseline value-added based assessment of educational effectiveness, educational efficacy, I think. That's the job that educators now need to be addressing because their old way of earning their living has gone. We need to discover the leaves on the tree, the things that we're interested in doing for their own sake, not because of what they promise, not because of what they confer upon us in terms of spending or earning power, in terms of fame, in terms of competitive advantage, but just in terms of being something we want to do and want to do better. Thank you for listening.